0: Hello, and welcome back to Stern Chats, a podcast that explores the untold stories of the NYU Stern community. My name is Cameron Murphy, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Michael North to the studio. Not only does Professor North teach an extremely inspiring course called Leadership in Organizations, which I had the pleasure of taking last year, but also he is a leading expert on ageism and multi-generational workforces. Like much of what Professor North has pursued in his life, the subject is off the beaten path. But sometimes it's the unexpected routes that lead us to our purpose, and I'm excited to learn from both his navigation and his destination. With that, let's get started. (music) Professor North, welcome to Stern Chats. How does it feel to be in the studio?
1: Thank you so much. It's awesome. I've been a, a listener for five years, so it's actually pretty surreal to be here.
0: That's amazing. You might be one of our most loyal listeners at this point.
1: I guess that I could be. I'm a loyal guy. That's that's the whole (laughs) point, right?
0: (laughs) Before we get into the questions, I actually did want to tell you that the mug that you gave out at the end of class last year, which had all of our phrases and things we learned on it, I use it constantly awesome I do not use it for coffee, however. I use it for almond milk when I eat milk and cookies. I think that I've watched maybe too many Christmas movies in my lifetime and it's really become a thing for me.
1: No, I think that's awesome. Uh, thank you for I'm glad that it's serving use to you. Um, I've heard all kinds of uses for it. I've heard pens, I've mm. heard coffee, I've heard other beverages and so on and so forth. So whatever whatever it is that inspires you, um, as long as it's, if it is a part of your life, that's certainly an honor for me.
0: Yeah. Well, it kind of becomes a personality quiz, right? How do you use your LIO mug?
1: Exactly. That'll be the next like Buzzfeed, Buzzfeed <laughs> quiz.
0: <laughs> Maybe we'll find an option to totally. bring it up. So in speaking to you, I've learned that you could be the subject of Robert Frost's poem about taking the road less traveled by. So I'd love you to share more about your personal and professional journey and that theme of unconventionality.
1: Absolutely. Um... Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a, you know, as someone who often feels, I don't mean this as like a sob story, but I feel often not fully understood in some ways, only by those maybe closest to me that that's a good way to put it. Um, And it's, I love that you use the Robert Frost example. Um, I think a guiding example in my life, my dad is actually a poet. Um, He went to law school and after six weeks decided to drop out in order to become a poet, which is not the most traditional career move But in so doing, he became a professor who's still doing it and um, his students love him and things like that. And so I think in many ways that has probably in retrospect set the stage for not being afraid to take non-traditional paths, even if they feel riskier at that time. You know, For my own life, I guess I tell some of these stories in LIO. I've had a series of, let's say, crossroads moments. One of the formative ones for about six years of my life, four years of undergrad plus two years after undergrad, if you had asked me what I was gonna do, I was I would have said I'm gonna be a therapist of some sort. And there's you know, your your former student, Kim, and so are others, uh, who, who would probably attest the fact that some aspects of what we do, I'm still kind of playing therapist without Absolutely. the official <laughs> without the official credential, I guess. And I remember having this moment, it was like really late at night, and my wife and I were sitting and watching TV, and I was every single thing I had done was geared toward this idea that I was gonna become a therapist. I took Clinical psychology instead of over actually social psychology, which is ironic because I ended up doing social psych later. And I was working in a clinical psychology research group where I just felt like I was giving clinical psych every ounce of my time and energy. And I had never really had any moments where I was just being honest with myself because I think I was kind of forcing it. I always thought I would be a decent therapist, I'm an empathic guy. At least I like to think of myself as that way. Um, you're nodding. So uh, yeah, that's it. I'll give that idea some credence. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. So there's aspects of that that certainly, I think I could have done that. However, what I realized was I was coming to my job. I was taking the classes in that domain. And none of it, if I was being honest, was really grabbing me kind of intellectually, but also in a deep level way. Like it just seemed like the thing I was quote unquote supposed to be doing, but it wasn't really what I actually maybe was genuinely invested or interested in doing. And so I had this moment, you know, it was like late at night talking with my wife and I was like, I don't think I can do this or I don't think I should do this. And she was so supportive. She was like, okay, well, what do you think you want to do? I was like, I kind of missed this social psychology thing which is something I had done in undergrad. More sort of broader questions about how different um, groups in society bump up against one another, how that influences different aspects of, yes, the workplace, but also social policies, our politics, things like race and gender, and of course, eventually age, which is a separate story. These are the bigger questions that I think I was more meant to study, but it wasn't as clear a path as to how I was actually going to be successful in doing that. How is that going to be like a reliable source of economic security which at the time when you're 23 is something you you worry about a lot and she was just like okay so we do social and yeah it's risky and the odds of getting a job down the road are incredibly small it seemed but it seemed like at the time what I was quote unquote supposed to be doing and ever since I made that switch I have never once thought oh wow maybe I should have been a therapist I know I still know it was the right decision to make.
0: Well, it sounds like you had a lot of people in your life who gave you space, not only in terms of the flexibility of figuring out what you want to do, but also the time to figure out what you want to do. And not everyone has that.
1: That's a great way to put it. I think maybe in some way there's like a latent goal of mine, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm doing it perfectly, nor that I'm the sole source of this. But I like to think the way I teach my class, the way that I interact with students is about giving that kind of space to be like, it's okay if you're not fully sure about what you're doing right now. It's okay if you feel this nagging doubt. You're just sort of doing what everyone else is doing, but you're deep down, you're kind of just blindly following the crowd. I like to think in some small way, I am giving that kind of space. And certainly my father, my, my mother, by the way, who's an artist, which is also not a very traditional, you know, occupation. Um, in many ways, I've been trained from an early age to not be afraid to pursue these non-traditional paths, and somehow you make it work. You know, in terms of having a livelihood, even though it doesn't seem clear when you venture into these for into these kinds of domains, um, how you're actually going to make that work.
0: I think I have a really bad case of oldest child syndrome because I've truly never thought about straying off of a very distinct and security-focused path. <laughs> but that's yep. a personal issue.
1: I got it. I'm the baby of my family, so I think in oh. many ways. If there were a rebel in my family in some small way, I would be that because of I think in some way that there is something to birth order and how that shapes, you know, your likelihood to I I don't know, are your younger siblings more rebellious than you would you say or is it we're unclear? all over
0: the place a little bit one of my brothers is in the video game universe another ones in sales and my sister wants to be in pr and i think essentially make her way to being harry styles personal assistant so <laughs> nice yes yes all oh. over the place but it's fun yeah. that makes life interesting totally so one follow-up question that's more on the fun side. Have you ever tried your hand at painting or poetry?
1: <laughs> so yes, I don't think I'm particularly great at either. I think actually growing up, it was ironically a source of not like insecurity or feeling terrible about myself, but more wanting to be like my dad, but not really feeling like I quite got it with the poetry thing. And same with painting, I'm okay at it, but I like to think I ch- I have some sort of creative energy that I channel into actually some of the things my students see me do
0: your slide decks
1: insofar as right insofar as I can the slide decks are part of it yeah just in general just like laying stuff out I actually designed my own website I design websites for people in my family that's like something I'm really nerdily passionate about I'm not saying I'm particularly great at it. I just really get into it but it's something that for me, gives me creative energy. So I like to think I channel it in other ways. I was also a musician in a previous life for a long time. So hey, the leather
0: to, jacket totally says it all.
1: I, it's all about that. It's a vibe, right, <laughs> that I'm creating. So yes, creating music, something with respect to how I'm Dressing now, I guess, in some sense, I'm trying to connote at some level, maybe being a little out of the box, a little off the beaten path, as you said. Yeah,
0: I think it's just another way of manifesting that message that you're sharing with your students.
1: That's the idea. Thanks.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit more about where you did ultimately land after you pursued social psychology.
1: So I was lucky enough when I applied to social psychology programs, even though, by the way, again, I had never taken a social psych undergrad class before. I was lucky enough to have had some experience as a research assistant in undergrad. In other words, I did like an undergrad honors thesis in social psych. It had to, It was this crazy study and still to this day, pretty pretty cool and also kind of frightening. We got a lot of participants to cheat on a quiz that we told them if they did well on it would go toward their intro psych grade and i was i was dressed up i mean i guess i was a fellow undergrad but i pretended i wasn't the researcher i was like i wore like a backwards um hat this was at the university of michigan by the way where i went to undergrad so i was wearing my backwards michigan hat and the experimenter's phone would go off in the middle of things and they would leave the room and i would grab the answer key that they had conveniently left on the desk and be like i really need these points do you want it do you want in and the fellow participant, 50% of the time, would cheat. And I was like, wow, wow. this is really cool like, and, and also frightening. But it's cool that you can like bring to life a social situation and see how people act. It's actually very much in the spirit of LIO when we do these sort of experiential things. But it's also in the, in the realm of the kind of research that I and many of my colleagues in the management department do where we're really interested in how social dynamics play out in the workplace and what happens when you put people in certain situations and, and things like that. So anyway because I had had these undergrad experiences, I was seen as not a totally off the beaten path candidate for social psych programs. And so I was really lucky to get into um, a number of schools, actually, and ended up going with Princeton, which I was you know, very fortunate to have gotten into, um, mainly because I had this opportunity to work with my advisor, who I talk about in class. It's just this amazing angel of a human being. Um, Her name is Susan Fisk. And she had my back from day one. And she was the one we got to talking on my graduate school interview. I was mentioning the age, age as a possible direction for doing research. And I was saying, but surely people are studying this, right? Because we have the aging population. And it's a fundamental category that we always talk about, you know, in, in terms of when we first notice someone, we first size them up. We notice their age, their race, and their gender. Those are the first three things we notice. Think of any like crime report; those are the three things that get reported. And she was like, "Actually, not really." And I was like, "Okay, cool. I guess I'll, I'll do it." And I have some personal reasons for why I was into that as well. If you want me to launch into that, but,
0: absolutely, I'm very interested.
1: Okay, cool. <laughs> so, so there's a couple reasons. One is um, I do consider myself very close with my family, especially my parents. Fun fact that some know about me, but not all do. My dad was actually my best man at my wedding, which is a huge honor, Heath says, for him. But for me, there was no other obvious choice. And he totally deserved it because he of all people sort of supported me throughout my life. But my parents were, they were in their 40s when they had me. So the way I like to say it is I grew up surrounded by maturity. And that is, I think, mostly a really good thing. In other words, when I'd come home from school and I had a problem or I was upset about something, my parents still to this day have a way of just keeping it all in perspective, making sure that I see the forest from the trees, that I don't get too bogged down in you know, that, that little thing that is bothering me, which is, by the way, the kind of thing a lot of us are striving for in our day-to-day lives, right? We strive for it through meditation or yoga or Pilates or working out or whatever your meditation is. I, I think I was fortunate that I had the benefit of that in my own home. Not everyone has that resource either. And... I don't think it's totally the fact that they were a little older than a lot of my friends' parents, but I don't think it's totally not um, related to that. In other words, there's a certain zenness that tends to come with age. There is research on this, that as one gets older, certain qualities develop that are actually good. In other words, we think of age and aging as this negative thing, but actually with age comes a host of good qualities, including being less neurotic, being calmer, not getting so worked up over things that maybe in your 20s and 30s or whatever seem so important at the time. And I think I've had a lifelong benefit of that kind of uh, maturity-related spillover, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. term, that made it really lucky. So that's like the personal reason. I'd also, the anecdote I tell in class is, I was lucky enough when I graduated from U of M to work with this famous distinguished professor named Richard Nisbet. And the study that I was going to be coordinating that summer had to do with comparing age groups on their wisdom. Basically, we gave folks a a bunch of different scenarios. It was usually like there are two warring tribes or there are two groups at you know, in a workplace that are at odds with one another. And what would you do to resolve this conflict? And we found actually that the older folks in the study were better at resolving the conflict, but independent of the results themselves. My personal journey going into this interaction was I was really dreading interacting with these older folks. My job was to interview one-on-one a group that was either over 60 or in their 30s. And when it came to the over 60 crowd, I couldn't have dreaded this more, Cam. I was just not looking forward to it. I thought they'd be boring. I thought they would smell. I thought it would be awkward. And it turned out I actually enjoyed interacting with them a lot more than those in their 30s. And that's nothing against anyone in their 30s. I'm in my 30s. But the older crowd was more interesting to me. They were more interested in me. They were more invested in the study. They were more thoughtful when it came to just the conversations we were having. And so that got me thinking, like, sort of my own reformed ageism, in a sense. I was like, I was 22 at the time. I thought to myself, I'm probably not the only 22-year-old who had these misconceptions. Maybe this is something I should be studying given also in retrospect my background which was not explicit in my mind for motivating why I care so much about age and generations and I find these like generation gaps and age gaps to be unnecessary sources of division in the workplace and elsewhere but in many ways um, in retrospect it all kind of makes sense that it came together and this is what I'm now studying for whatever reason.
0: (laughs) I'm going to get in touch with AARP and see if they'll sponsor us after this. That's a great idea.
1: I've done some work with them, actually. They are very much on board with the general spirit of the kind of work we do here, at least.
0: So I want to go back to the personal story you shared. And one takeaway I got from that was not just the maturity of your parents, but also the way that they helped you work through problems. You know, your concern around not seeing the forest for the trees it really ties into this idea that you love wrestling with these big overarching problems because that's what you learned as a child is what is the question that really matters and it's the larger, more universal question versus one that maybe is not as relevant.
1: Totally. You you get me, Cam, somehow. It's great. Um, I really appreciate it. (laughs) Again, I often feel misunderstood and I don't mean that as like I'm trying to generate unnecessary sympathy for me. You know, don't feel no, bad. No, I think it's that's a universal
0: thing, too. It's a feeling that a lot of people experience, but they don't necessarily reflect on it or verbalize it in the way that others do.
1: That's a good way to put it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Bigger questions. You know, I, I guess I didn't mention this explicitly. I'm a New York City native. I grew up on the Upper West Side. I still live up there, which I'm very fortunate to, you know, be and I have two kids and see them experience some of the experiences I had growing up through their eyes. It's, it's really a, a, you can't really put a price on that. But I think that caring about the bigger deal issues, the bigger questions, it, it's not a coincidence that growing up in New York City fuels that. I think I see that in a lot of my students too. I see it in you, I see it in others that it's, you can't go to school here, you can't work here, you can't be in the center of it feels like everything, you know. It's I guess it's arrogant to say it's the center of the universe, but some people, you know, would. would I don't think know.
0: That. After going to a few restaurants here, I'm willing to make that case. You're
1: convinced. Cool. So we'll we'll, we'll roll with that for now. Um Yeah, it, it's. I always say New York is the city of ambition. I noticed that whenever I've lived elsewhere, which embarrassingly maybe hasn't been all that much, you know, I've been either in New York or New Jersey for my whole life, except for the four years I. I was at Michigan, but it is it does cultivate my ambition in a way that no other place does. And I think a lot of my students, a lot of us who live around here would agree with that. And so to me, it does feel like why settle for these small crumbs, which is fine. And, and I'm not trying to say like helping someone one-on-one is just a small crumb that doesn't matter, because to be honest, you can probably tell by the way I teach my class at some level, like I actually really do genuinely care about making a one-on-one connection with as many students as I possibly can. That's a big motivating thing that actually gets me up in the morning to do it i never get tired of learning about people's individual stories i never get tired about trying to find commonalities i think i've said before, it's like this fun scavenger hunt. I get to play every semester. And maybe that's kind of, you know, odd or something. No, but I, find I think it so that's actually
0: the key to the networking that a lot of us have to endure in our first year is trying to find something you have in common with this partner at a consulting firm who's been there for 20 years. And it is a real treasure hunt.
1: It is. Yeah, that, that's that seems like a good analogy. This is what's on your minds all the time as an MBA student and, and even as an undergrad at NYU, um, at Stern at least. And yeah, trying to find these commonalities. And, and it can be rough sled. Right. There's awkwardness and there's the sort of song and dance of pretending like you're not doing what you're actually doing, pretending like you're not networking when you're actually networking. But the more that you can make it intrinsically interesting to you to find these commonalities, the more not only are you going to enjoy it, but the more that you're probably going to be successful in doing that.
0: To jump back to your study of ageism, I'm curious why people aren't paying more attention to this considering, to your point earlier, it is something that affects all of us and it is something that we all notice in our day-to-day lives.
1: Yeah, great. And this is a question I think about all the time still. I, I would say people pay more attention now than they did 10 or 15 years ago. I think the demographics are now in the favor of not being able to ignore, for example, the growing boomer population, the growing number of people who are working longer than ever and not retiring, but also on the younger side of things, you know, the Gen Z millennial generation sort of also being this giant blob, you know, these two giant blobs, one at the top, one at the bottom of the age demographic that are sort of progressing through society together. And that's creating some degree of friction. I would say there's a lot of reasons for why people don't think about it. One is just people don't really like to go around thinking about their own Age or aging, all that mortality. much mortality salience is a is a is the way that psychologists characterize it. In other words, anything to do with getting older or aging is a reminder of your eventual mortality. That's sort of the depressing reason for why we don't think about that. I also think in general. People link age with aging, and that isn't, in my opinion, always the way one should think about it, but inevitably that kind of happens. I see it in my own career where I get roped into sort of gerontology concerns or sometimes even end-of-life palliative care Even independent of that kind of thing, if you think about the way in which most of our societal arenas are organized, you tend to have a lot of formative experiences with folks your own age for the most part, with a pretty limited age range. I would say the two exceptions to that are the family and the workplace, where you're sort of forced in some sense to interact with other generations or age groups. And it's not like things are completely peachy on either of those fronts, right? In fact, I have yet to meet another person who has not had some example of generational conflict, tension, age-based misunderstanding within their own family as well as in the workplace. Ask anyone
0: about how election season has gone for them or, or Thanksgiving dinner.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Thanksgiving dinner, election season. Think about a time you were being managed by someone older than you and you felt like they didn't quite vibe with what your work style was or you had to manage someone younger than you and you felt that's on the other side that tension or maybe even a reverse arrangement where you had to manage someone older than you. It's just no matter what almost it feels like there's always some degree of awkwardness there that if not acknowledged, or if you don't actually get in the room and have a sort of heart to heart conversation where you explicitly lay out expectations, outright tensions can manifest and people lose their jobs over it because they're not seen as a good fit or they're seen as a problem. And that kind of thing is the kind of thing that at least I want my research to try to rectify this idea that you're either seen as too old for your job. So you're sort of subtly pushed aside or on the other side that you're seen as too young to know what you're talking about so that your voice doesn't matter. I think both of those sides of the spectrum are equally pernicious when it comes to society the workplace. and yet I don't know if we're having that kind of conversation enough and that's what I want to contribute to
0: so it sounds like we still have a ways to go before we're in a good spot with this divide, with this awkwardness, this tension. I'm curious though, you said that there has been more attention that's been brought to this subject in recent years. So what improvements have we made?
1: I would say, and again, I'm only I can only speak to my own journey with this being starting out in about fifteen years ago as a lonely PhD student researching a topic that it felt like no one cared about in a field that I felt like I was parachuting into. Right. Right.
0: And then you're constantly thinking about mortality. It sounds really uplifting. It's it's
1: a really it was a good time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, and talk to any PhD student, you know, the ones I mentor, I'm always like, "How are you doing?" Like, really, don't be asked me like, don't "How are you back. actually? How are you actually doing?" Because I know it can be a lonely existence regardless even independent of those things. So, anyway, yes, that's that's totally accurate. But I would say the main difference, you know, I started grad school in 2008, and I kind of felt like I would talk about age and age-based discrimination, age-based prejudice, and people be like, "Oh, that's interesting," but then they wouldn't really want to continue the conversation all that much to the point where now I'm noticing that more people are, I guess, these dynamics, these tensions, these generational issues, which maybe were kind of like seeds under this, you know, in the soil 15 years ago, they're starting to blossom a little bit more where people are noticing, as I said before, the age demographics are just undeniable. You know, I talk about in class, people talk often. I think most people are aware the United States is due to become majority non-white in the coming decades that's gonna have serious consequences for society. But the thing that we don't talk about quite as much is the age demographics are also following a similar pattern where you have an older population that is undeniably healthier, working longer than ever, more viable, actually quite good at their jobs overall. In other words, these antiquated notions that when you're a certain age that you can't do your job anymore, there is zero research that actually bears out that perception. So you have this like on the one side, this older population that does want to work longer. They don't actually want to retire and step aside the way that maybe prior generations expect were expected to do. They, they're not really going off into the sunset because they have so much to contribute And because they don't want to retire in some cases, or maybe financially they can't retire. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have this younger generation who feels equally like they have a right to enter the workplace. And I'm sure many current Stern students have this kind of story. In fact, almost everyone does. You know, there there are those memes out there of like, we're looking for an entry level position, but you have to have 20 years of experience. That's the joke, obviously an exaggeration. It's hard to get a job, it's really hard. And so it's equal levels of anxiety on both sides. And I don't think that's good for a society or a workplace, or a workforce that is increasingly multi-generational.
0: It's not good for trust. It doesn't engender cooperation when you have two sides who are suspicious of one another.
1: Exactly, In, in any kind of regard. And I would say, in of course, the way I see the world, given my research lens that I tend to view it through, age is one of the primary ways that does engender, in my opinion, unnecessary mistrust, exactly.
0: So what advice would you give current MBA students who are about to reenter the workforce in thinking about this issue and maybe trying to make some progress at their own companies?
1: Totally. So one is, I guess, what we just talked about, which is just, I think, weirdly, unless you're talking about your parents, your kids, your grandparents, your grandkids, we don't tend to have a lot of enough empathy for other generations' situations.
0: Maybe don't say, OK, boomer, when your manager tells you to do something. Exactly. That's
1: not healthy, in my opinion. But on the other side, also not healthy to be like, oh, I hate millennials, which mm-hmm. I've literally heard some folks say. So one is to just be aware and try to do what you can to be generationally empathic. But I guess a couple of other pieces of advice um, come from my own research collaboration. So one published research paper is on a topic that we call youngism. In other words, young adult focused ageism. And this is in collaboration. This this work was really spearheaded by my former uh, Stern management PhD student, Stefan Francioli, who's now a postdoc at Wharton. So the bad news here is that if you are, you know, under the age of, let's say, roughly 30, although we don't always specify, but if you're a Gen Z or younger side of millennial, let's say, we find that on the whole, today's younger generation is seen as particularly Lacking, now that's not fair. Lacking in what capacity? Well, lacking in terms of people having positive regard for them. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's something called a feelings thermometer. Sounds kind of silly, but it's like a very straightforward measure used in social psychology research and management research. How do you feel toward this group of people? It's a very simple measure. It's pretty predictive of, of a lot of things, how people are treated. So on this feelings thermometer kind of thing, people see today's younger generation less positively compared to older generations today but also they see them less positively compared to younger generations of years prior. So that's one message. It's not particularly Ouch. uplifting, but exactly. It's, it's pretty harsh. The other part is when asked to generate words spontaneously, what are words that come to mind when you think of today's younger generation? We find both positive and negative things. So on the positive side, people see today's younger generation as cool you know, sort of hip, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of with it. Hip is
0: a very boomer term to use to describe a younger generation, which actually...
1: On fleek, let's say. (laughs) I know that's so dated, but I just love saying that. It's so ridiculous. Anyway, so yeah, something along those lines, in step with what's considered cool for today's day and age. They're seen as tech savvy. They're seen as ambitious, right? Sort of competent in those kinds of regards. But on the negative side, they're simultaneously seen as particularly coddled, entitled, narcissistic, And I think one of the more interesting ones, there's this other domain which we call naively radical. In other words, this sort of idea of trying to disrupt things, but for the sake of disrupting them, not necessarily because they need to be disrupted, but just sort of changing things for the sake of change. In other words, sort of like rebels without a cause. Mm. I'm not saying these perceptions are necessarily accurate or fair. I am saying that these perceptions are out there. And if I am giving advice to current MBA students trying to navigate their workplaces, and I do this with all my students, the first step is just to be aware these perceptions are out there. I'm not saying it's fair, but it is the the hand oh, that you are Oh, I've heard dealt. them.
0: I've heard them, and all I can say is I will never let go of my participation trophies. There
1: you go. <laughs> exactly, and and as well, you shouldn't. And if you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna hold on to those, you should. So well, yeah. Well, when
0: you're but, not very good at sports, you'll take what you can you've get. You
1: gotta take what you can get, exactly. And if people are seeing you in these ways, you'll also take what you can get. Right. Um, so just being aware, doing whatever you can to combat those perceptions is certainly one piece of advice. The other piece of advice I would give is born out of a more positive message. Um, this is with my friend and collaborator Ting Zhang, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, and we we originally called the paper Wonderkind Wisdom, which the idea is that there's a surprising value to taking advice from someone younger than you that we often overlook. And so what we did was we basically asked participants in our study to generate pieces of advice, and we found that people, when asked, they generated the piece of advice, but we also asked them, how confident are you in giving advice to someone older, same age, and younger? As you might imagine, people were the most confident in giving advice to someone younger than them or the same age, way less confident in their ability to advise someone older than them. Again, it feels awkward. However, when asked to rate these pieces of advice that were generated, in other words, let's say you're a 22-year-old in the study and you're asked to generate a piece of advice to someone 10 years older, we would recruit 32-year-olds into the study and ask them to rate the quality of advice that they would be given, matched to the ostensible age of the advice recipient we found no statistically significant difference in the perceived value of the advice, whether it was generated from someone the same age, someone older, or someone younger than you. In other words, the advice that we give to someone older than us is rated as no less useful than the advice given to someone the same age or younger. I think that's a pretty surprising, almost mind-blowing finding. It's really cool. It's counterintuitive, and it goes to show that if you are a young, relatively junior worker in your workplace, don't sell yourself short. Don't underestimate the value that you can bring to your workplace because you actually are full of a lot of good ideas that should probably be heard. And I should hasten to note it's not just what a lot of people think like, oh, what's the latest app? How do you navigate TikTok? Yes, you can certainly there's probably on average a little more knowledge if you're a certain younger age than a certain older age. So we want to be careful not to broad brush too much. But on average, that's probably true. But it's not just that. It's things like life advice.
0: Well, I'd love to transition into an application that this comes up with in media. And it's a dynamic that we see playing out specifically, I'm thinking of, in Succession since it looms very large in the TV zeitgeist at this point. So for anyone who hasn't heard of the show, it's about a formidable media mogul named Logan Roy, whose ailing health prompts an intense power struggle among his children for the company. So you've watched Succession, some of it at least, mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear which areas of your research you saw as you were watching the show.
1: <laughs> that's a great question. And by the way, thank you for the recommendation. I, I yes. want to go on record as saying I, I watched season one because of you, Cam. So thank you. I've only watched the first season. I'm definitely going to Well, that's good. We through. won't spoil
0: it for thank too many you. people.
1: Exactly. But um, having watched season one. All I will say is, yes, it's a very family business oriented perspective on it, which, by the way, is a domain that I think resonates with plenty of Stern students I have taught in the past, at least particularly undergrads, many of them who come from certain cultures, certain countries, they they actually feel these kinds of tensions and, and interesting burdens, that um, interesting to me at least. Either maybe power struggles or maybe they have an older sibling who's expected to be the heir and they actually want to be, or maybe vice versa where they're the older sibling but they privately doubt whether they want to do it or not. I see a lot of these kinds of dynamics playing out in the show, this sort of expectations about what the older generation has for the younger generation within the family and how there are certain qualities that make maybe certain family members more or less responsible than others. Certainly, they all have their own baggage. I think is part of the theme I'm learning is none of them seems like a perfect uh, heir apparent. Um, Yeah, just this, I, I would just say this fundamental tension of succession, believe it or not, one of the fundamental tenets of my dissertation work, I literally call succession. It's this whole idea of the tension between older generations and younger ones, older generations wanting to hold on to power and resources and status and jobs younger ones seeing their older colleagues, their older family members, their older fellow members of society not stepping aside quickly enough so as to open up opportunities for themselves. Again, I'm not saying that perception is fair. I am saying that inherent tension seems to fundamentally underlie a lot of our societal spheres. And it's really fascinating to me to see it play out in succession. It's really interesting. I mean, there's other things like all the characters, at least as of now, are so unlikable and yet somehow compelling. And somehow compelling and generate sympathy. And I'm not, maybe that's a result of thinking about these kinds of tensions and sort of empathizing, but it's also just really good writing and production.
0: Absolutely. And this is even more appropriate than I realized. So it is. I'm so glad we're talking about it. <laughs> I think what you were just speaking about in terms of this tension really manifests with Logan and his oldest child, Kendall. Mm -hmm. And Kendall really wants to move the company into this new era that's really digitally focused, and Logan is holding on to the more conservative, traditional view of the company. So why do you think that he's so unsuccessful, Kendall, in trying to convince his father that they need to move forward?
1: very interesting. I mean, aside from he seems to just have a lot of bad luck, at least as of that season too. one.
0: And I think that may be part of why we feel sympathy for him. I at I think points. so.
1: It's it's hard to I don't know if it's bad to be like I'm on team Kendall. But right now, I at least as of season one, it's he seems like the, the one I sympathize with the most. But who knows? Anyway, yes. Why does he keep getting stonewalled by by his father? And I think, you know, I think it mirrors a lot of what my own research has found, which is there is a I mean, I keep saying the word tension, but there's a I think, legitimate concern on both sides of the old guard wanting to keep the tradition, wanting to keep the way things have always been. Um, In this case, Logan wants to have the company sort of continue on its traditional path in, in various ways. You see that manifest and Kendall wanting to disrupt things. And it's almost like what. Some of my research findings have shown. It's a
0: callback to the idea that the younger generations want to disrupt for the sake of it.
1: Exactly. There's the naive radicalism, for lack of a better term, that Logan probably sees Kendall with. And then on the flip side, what a lot of my dissertation work showed is that there's this inherent succession tension where Kendall wants to have his time. He wants to have his moment that he's been waiting for his whole life and presumably been groomed for his whole life to take over. And not able to do it because he sees this roadblock in his way and that's again i i think it's cool that 15 you know this is obviously not all about me but just talking about it in my own personal standpoint 15 years ago that kind of idea wasn't something that at least from a scholarly standpoint people were thinking about now i think it's cool that there's a pop culture example that we can point to that shows that no this is really a fundamental thing that characterizes a lot of not just family businesses but organizations in general there's always an older guard and a younger guard. And there's always going to be some degree of at least disagreement. And the key is to have it not turn into outright, you know, an outright uh, battle for, for power.
0: Well, one thing that younger generations are also known for is the parallel processing when we're watching TV. So my new form will be having your research on my laptop as succession is on my TV. Totally,
1: the multitasking. Yes. That is something that your generation gets does get due credit for. So make of that what you no, want.
0: No, I say. appreciate that. <laughs> My next question related to the show is, have you seen any characters who are effective in the cross-generational interaction, or do you think everyone's terrible? (laughs)
1: Um, As of now, I guess it seems like Greg is the one who Mm. seems, or at least is one that comes to mind when you ask that. He seems to be a little more, maybe it's just the most empathic one, at least as of now. I don't know what happens the next two seasons. I won't tell you. Yeah, okay, cool. He seems like he... He's the one who sympathizes with Logan the most, but he also really sympathizes with like Tom and seems to see both sides of the issue. So in that sense, maybe in terms of perspective taking. Yeah, Greg comes with seems the awareness that.
0: that you mentioned of, OK, I need to understand my own biases against these two groups and also seek to put myself in those.
1: Exactly. Shoes. And I mean, that could just be part of that, how he doesn't seem to be in one camp or the other, whereas clearly Marsha. Seems to be clearly in the, the sort of Logan older guard side, and um, you know others are also in that side. Whereas Kendall has his posse that he's rallied around him, and um,
0: posse is yeah. a good word for it because Kendall, <laughs> for some reason, thinks that he is to use a word from before hipper. He does he seem he is, is more. Life.
1: He does seem feel like he's more on fleek than he actually <laughs> is. It's, yes, for sure. Lots of baseball caps. Yes. for yeah. Kendall. <laughs> That's true,
0: but he pulls him off. Yeah. So. To close out, I would like to return to this idea of not fitting the mold because I think that it's been a theme throughout our conversation and in previous conversations as well. And I will turn it back to an advice idea um, as well. So what advice would you give to people who feel like they don't fit in or maybe are anxious about making some less conventional choices?
1: Totally. I'll start with an anecdote if that's okay, as I do in my class. You know, growing up in New York, it's intense, right? New York is the city of ambition, but it's also the city that can make you feel at times like you don't matter or like it can just be harsh, right? I can say having grown up here, I felt, maybe not just due to New York, Very, I was a very shy kid. I actually felt the opposite of the way I do now where I was terrified of standing out. And I did find in high school, I had friends and stuff. And for some reason, even though I was quiet and shy, my report cards always characterized me as like a quiet leader. I didn't feel like that at the time because I feel I felt and continue to feel still like I am often talked over and I am naturally introverted and I still have trouble speaking up in meetings. Even in my own department where I feel very comfortable, I still get that same anxiety. My heart starts racing and I still feel like it takes me a while to jump into the conversation. I think some aspect of that will always be a part of me, I guess, for better, or for worse. I went from being kind of a shy, quiet kid who wore I wore the same thing to school every day, like a gray t-shirt and jeans. And I'm not saying I've come that far because I'm actually still wearing that just with a (laughs) leather jacket on top and different shoes, I guess. But I was so shy to stand out. And I had this intentional moment when I went to college. I went to Michigan. And it's so silly, but it is an intentional act that started this chain of trying to develop courage and not being afraid to not fit the mold.
0: The ripple effect, knocking down the first domino, choose exact, your metaphor.
1: Wonderful metaphors. Exactly. And for me, that first domino, as ridiculous as it sounds, and you are, you are, should. not only are you welcome to, but you should make fun of me for this. I rolled up a blue bandana and I tied it around my forehead, not Tupac style per se, more Ryu from Street Fighter style, if you get the gamer reference, or sort of Karate Kid style, that kind of thing, Cobra Kai. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this because I like the way it looks. It looks, in retrospect, ridiculous. But at the time, it meant a lot to me. And I was like, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to see how people react to me when I do this. And yeah, for a couple of weeks, I got comments. I got called Karate Kid. I got called Tupac and things like that. But after two weeks, it became the default. And I noticed, huh, that's interesting. People aren't really... Saying anything about it. this is just oh there's that kid who wears the bandana whatever, and that got me thinking. You know we talk in Lao about the leadership ladder, and this is something I learned from Nate Pettit, who should get full credit for that. It's his idea that I'm that I'm running with here. That leadership is not necessarily a trait. It's more of a, or at least the way we think about it in Lao, it's more of a muscle that you flex. It's a series of steps that you can take. Where the first domino or the first rung of the ladder, to add another metaphor there are to do these smaller acts of courage that lead to bigger ones. Weirdly, wearing, deciding to wear that bandana, which I wore almost every day in college, and I have friends who see me as that, as ridiculous as that probably sounds, I was like, okay, cool, I can own this look, I can deal with some of the comments and mockery, and I'll be fine. And that led to more out-of-the-box behaviors to the point where arguably the defining moment in my life, or at least one of them, was asking my now wife out on a date when I didn't know whether she would say yes, we were friends, we would study in the same study lounge together. She makes fun of me saying I was stalking her. I was not stalking her. (laughs) I just knew she would be there. It wasn't like I was peering, you know, from behind my book, not studying. I was legitimately studying, but I knew she'd be there. And I was leveraging a principle we talk about in psychology known as mere exposure, where the more that you're exposed to something or someone and they don't completely suck the more that you like that if it's neutral or positive, the more that you like it. That's why we tend to be friends with people who live in our, you know, hall freshman year. That's why we tend to date those who are around us in our workplaces, in our, you know, in our dorms or whatever. And so that was an enormous act as a shy kid who was very, I was just terrified to ever do something like that. I asked her out. She said yes we went on a date and that was almost 20 years ago. We've been together ever since. Wow! That is a defining moment for me because that is not something that even a year prior to that when I'm gray t-shirt, jeans, sort of mumbling no when bandana. I talk, definitely no bandana a year prior, all of a sudden I'm the bandana man who is asking out this you know, incredibly smart and beautiful woman who's now my wife and um, mother of my two children and all that. And that kind of thing, if I can inspire anything in my students, it would be that. It's to not be afraid to, yeah, all the cliches, like come out of your shell, be bold, whatever. But to practice doing that to the point where now, like, look at me, I'm wearing this maroon leather jacket. That's not, that's it's an intentional choice. I know it's silly, I know it's gonna get comments, but now I actually wear it around now. I think some of my students at first are like, confused by it because they're used to seeing me in like a blazer but now it's like okay cool there's that professor that wears that jacket and like it's the same thing as the bandana it's the same thing as asking my now wife out it's these little acts where if you can prove to yourself that you can own it then do it you know that that would be the thing and so i think if i can inspire in any kind of sense that it's okay to zag i would hope that if at least one student feels like they are able to do that as well then i've done my job
0: I think it's a really powerful message because a lot of people think that you're born with leadership and with confidence and those abilities. And it's not true because anyone can climb a ladder. You just have to have confidence to get on the first
1: step. Exactly. But just to give myself as an example, I am a natural introvert who then is thrust at the front of an MBA, several MBA classrooms on a day to day basis. And I'm supposed to command the room. And it's still a work in progress. I still get nervous before every class. I still put a lot of pressure on myself to speak to everyone in the class, not just the huge class participators, but those who I know are natural introverts. Because if I can inspire even one natural introvert to come out of their shell and at least see my class as an opportunity to have their voice be heard when they ordinarily don't feel like it is heard, for whatever reason, maybe it's based on their demographic, maybe it's based on their social class, maybe it's based on not feeling like they're the modal path of what everyone else is at least pretending to be doing, then that's the kind of thing that 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 alone justifies my decision to, you know, (laughs) go into becoming a a social social psych slash management oriented professor at a business school rather than the therapist that I originally was, because at least I'm sort of providing some sort of healing in that regard, maybe.
0: And in the same way that the older and younger generations can learn from one another, so too can the people who push and the people who pull. So...
1: It's all about that. It's all about people from different walks of life. Yes. And people who don't, by default, see a lot of commonalities, seeing eye to eye. And that's been, I've said this before, that's been a defining theme in my professional career. It's a defining theme in my family. It's a defining theme in my marriage. Where on paper, none of these things look like a match between different parties. But there's almost always common ground to find where the outcome ends up being better. And that goes back to the networking thing, where you're going to be a more successful networker if you have that kind of mentality and you're at least curious to dig and do the treasure hunt and try to find what those commonalities are.
0: Well, I think empathy and finding common ground is the perfect note to end on. This has awesome. been a fascinating discussion on a topic I certainly plan to keep in mind when I re-enter the workforce and Obviously, when I watch Succession. (laughs) I'd like to thank Professor North for spending time with me in the studio, our executive producer, Sam, for producing this episode, and you for listening. We'll be back next week.